Hey, it's me, Maurice. Before we get into this week's show, I just want to let you know that we're coming up on Revision Path's ninth anniversary. And to help celebrate that, we're going to do a mailbag episode for our January 31st show. So we'd love to hear from you. So send me your questions to mail at revisionpath.com, and I'll try to answer as many of them as I can. I'll also put a link in the show notes to the contact page on our website, too, just in case you want to send your questions that way. Or you could even send us your question on Twitter or Instagram. Can't wait to hear from you. Now on with the show. Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Just head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Work & Co. is looking for several different positions. A designer, a lead designer, a product manager, a senior product manager, and a product management lead. Now, all these positions are located in Brooklyn, New York. The product manager, senior product manager, and product management lead positions are also looking for candidates for their Los Angeles and Portland offices. GBH is looking for a motion designer slash editor in Boston, Massachusetts. And Design Action Collective is looking for a production designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Happy New Year to you. It's 2022. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Charlene Atlas, an interaction designer on the Reality Labs team at Meta. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hiya, my name is Charlene Atlas, and I am on a mission to break our content free from flat screens. As an interaction designer in Reality Labs Research at Meta, formerly Facebook, I work with scientists, researchers, and engineers to envision and create the far future of virtual and augmented reality. Break our content free from flat screens. I like that. It's funny. I've had some folks on the show before that uh, have like done like AR and VR mixed reality. And I always keep bringing this up about, I don't know if you remember this, this television show in the nineties called VR troopers. <laughs> no, I'm not familiar. Oh, people that listen to the show are probably tired of me mentioning it, but there's, there was this, uh, this show called VR troopers very much in the same vein of like a power rangers. It was very much like a, Japanese kind of like Sentai, like karate kind of kid show. Mm -hmm. And they were basically these kids that fought in virtual reality. And it's so interesting because I think about that time and then I think about the topics that are discussed now around virtual reality and the metaverse and how like that was kind of fiction when we were kids and now it's reality as adults, which is just wild to think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of things that we thought in the past we couldn't do that we can do now. And so I'm hoping <laughs> that in the future, too, there's, we can achieve the impossible, what we think is impossible now, for sure. Yeah. So we're recording this, you know, right before the new year, just so folks know. But I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how has 2021 been for you? Like, any grand discoveries or anything like that? 
Well, it's been pretty interesting for me because in late 2020, I had my first child in September. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yes, thank you. So he's about 14 months old now. So it's been a pretty interesting year for my husband and I having our first kid and he just changing so much every day. And it's great to like watch him grow and doing that all during the pandemic has definitely been another layer of <laughs> of challenge and, and adventure, but we're doing good. Yeah. Thank you. Nice. Nice. I guess kind of going forward, thinking about 2022, do you have any any particular plans or resolutions or anything? I think the main thing for 2022 is that we really want to see our families. So none of our family has actually met our son yet. Uh, oh. So, yeah. So really want to get <laughs> figured out, you know, all of this pandemic stuff and be able to see our families back home. Yeah, I can imagine that's, oh, wow. Yeah, with a new baby, I'm sure. I'm sure your parents and other family and stuff, and then his, you know, his uh, his dad's parents also probably want to see him too. Because wow, hopefully yeah, you all can make baby, that happen. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. With his age, yeah, he's not vac- he can't get vaccinated, that kind of thing. And then you know you have older parents, and so it's like it's not the best combination for the <laughs> current situation. But yeah, I feel hopeful that we'll get to see each other next year. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I hope that happens for you. I really do. So you work as an interaction designer at Meta, which. Of course, most people know about, as its former name, Facebook. What does interaction design mean at Meta in terms of the work that you do? Yeah, so I'm particularly in Reality Labs, the organization that focuses on augmented and virtual reality. And within that, I'm in the research organization. And so even though I'm called an interaction designer, it's kind of different from what you might assume of like, you know, web design or, you know, 2D interface design. It's more about how are we going to interact with this new medium of virtual and augmented interfaces? And so that's what I mean when I say interaction designer. And my team that I work on with research design is kind of a different field from product design in that you're not focusing on making a product that you'll then release in a few years. It's more that you are working directly with scientists and engineers who are making completely new technologies to look at what is the user value, a uh, potential user value in the future of these technologies? What are things we could change to have more impact in the future? And maybe even what are new technologies we should invent to really meet the needs of, of people in the five to 10 year time frame? I can imagine it's probably really interesting to think that far out as it relates to technology and, and like what you want to accomplish and, and things of that nature. What does like a typical day look like for you? Yeah, I'm involved in a lot of different projects. And so there's, of course, there's meetings with the research teams. There's doing the usual designer things of making specifications for how an experience should be built. So we build experiences that use some of these new technologies. And we often also have to build what we call time machines. So this idea of creating an experience that's simulating things that we expect will exist in the future so that we can better evaluate things that we want to create. And so there's a lot of prototyping and yeah, I just also a lot of writing. So at Meta in general, we value writing a lot. And so there's a lot of writing of like, what are people's future visions? What are ways to approach work? So, and also if you have any new ideas, you usually have to write like a one pager of some kind to like start getting traction around it. So yeah, it's mostly a lot of like writing, making mock-ups, talking with researchers to understand what questions we need to, to answer to really get the technology in the right direction to really make a the impact we want to have in the world in the future. Tell me more about Reality Labs. Like you sort of mentioned a bit about sort of what the makeup of the team is and I guess sort of the technology that it works on, but can you just go a little bit more in depth about that? Yeah, so Reality Labs, so we have more of the product side that focuses on our, our current work. So Things like the MetaQuest, MetaQuest 2, VR devices that we have out out in the wild. But then the research side, we have a lot of different research teams inside that focus on a variety of topics like graphics. So like cutting edge graphics research, optical research, display systems, perception science, like how do people perceive what they're seeing. So we really have like a team for each piece of, of what we think will be necessary to build the future for VR and AR that can really become the next wave of technology for the world. So like if you think about that shift that happened from command line interfaces to the GUI, 
that's the level of shift that we're trying to make with AR VR in the future. So basically, we're trying to cover all of the all of the different you know senses that, that humans have, all the different things that people might need to be able to do. We have world class researchers in each of those areas that we can work directly with and see how we can put all that together into something that can hopefully be a transformational change in the future. Mm. Let's talk about the metaverse, which Facebook sort of debuted at Facebook Connects a few months back, like on a high level. So our audience can understand it and also so I can understand it. Like, what is the metaverse? The metaverse, you know, as we've talked about in the public is kind of an embodied internet. So this idea of connecting with people that you care about and really feeling present with them is one of the key pieces of it. And this isn't something that is limited just to my work in ARVR, but it's really something that exists and can be accessed by lots of different devices. Just like now we are, you know, in a call or if we're in a video call and or if you're on the internet, there's lots of different ways to access the internet, right? And lots of different ways to join a call or, you know, what have you. And so it's really about putting the pieces in place so that we can move beyond where we are right now with just kind of having these mediated surfaces right between us and instead feeling like we are together and can really engage as we would in real life. So it's really just sort of like, and then correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds just like a a natural extension or progression of, say, the internet that we know now. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the internet now, I mean, even this is kind of not like this isn't real, like, like what we're doing now, where like like it's being replicated. So there's so many steps of like audio being replicated and represented, and you know, so like really, we have our senses, we interpret what we what we receive, and like we feel or have a sense for what's going on, right? And that's the same thing with the metaverse. Is just that it's something that's going to take years to build, just because of the the scale of what we're trying to do. But you can think of it as yeah, that next step of how do we really feel like we're together? This is a huge leap, what we're doing right now, right, of what it was like decades ago. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of leap that we want to make into the future. As you said that, that sort of reminded me of of the scene in The Matrix where Neo goes to meet the Oracle for the first time. Mm-hmm. So Neo goes to meet the Oracle, and before he meets her, he has to like sit in this little waiting area. And there's this kid that's like bending these spoons. You know what I'm talking about? This part of the yes. movie? And and the spoon, and, yeah. yeah, and the kid picks up the spoon. Oh, he picks up the spoon and then he hands it. Well, he bends it, then he hands it to Neo, and the kid is like, you know, don't like try to bend the spoon. Instead, like try to bend yourself, and then you'll realize that there is no spoon. And so for me, I'm going a little esoteric here, so bear with me. To me, the way that I think about that with the metaverse is that just sort of like how you're saying. Like, this isn't real because of, like, the recreation of voice across electrons and distance. Like, we're not talking really in real time. It's like a simulation of that. And so mm-hmm. when you think about the metaverse and that extension of that, you know, it's just, it's taking what we sort of already know now with the internet and its, you know, ways and, and culture and stuff like that, I would imagine, and thinking about what that means on just a grander scale. Yeah, it's, it's helpful to think about, like, what are the barriers that exist now? And and going back to your, your question before of like, how do you project that into the future? That That's part of what we think about is like, what are the things that, you know, people have issues with now? What are the technologies that exist that are on track to land at certain points in the future? And so then now knowing those technologies are going to be in place, what can we enable for people? What are the experiences we can enable? And these are experiences that, as I said, like, it's not going to be that you can only access it on a particular device. It's going to be Anyone can access it in a, on their own device in their own way. And all of those different access points have to be a valuable experience for people. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about the access. Because what I remember from Connect is that most people were using the MetaQuest 2, which people know also as the Oculus Quest 2. That was its old name. But people have seen that device in terms of like, oh, this is how folks are accessing it. And like you said, there's going to be different ways to do it in the future because the MetaQuest 2 is, of course, not the only device that you can use to access virtual reality and stuff. I mean, you can use a cell phone or you could use another device from another company or something like that. So it sounds like as this builds out into the future, there will hopefully be more of a, I don't know, like democratization of technology to access it. But I don't know if that necessarily all has to stem from Meta, it sounds like. Yeah, right. And and as we've said, like in the different releases, we're not trying to 
it's not that it's like okay, we're making the metaverse and like nobody else is we're building for the metaverse we're getting ready we're getting ready for like us all to be at that point just like the internet isn't owned by any particular company mm-hmm. yeah i think it's it's helpful to think about it that way and that meta is building for the metaverse and that meta is not creating the metaverse mm-hmm. right am i am i <laughs> i just want to yeah, i'm trying I mean, to make sure i get that distinction down yeah, I mean, like, this is like, yeah, nobody is, like, making the internet right. I mean, yeah, exactly. You've got Yeah, it. I get it. I get it. I've been around on the web for a long time, and I remember even in the early days of the web going from, like, web 1.0 to web 2.0, just a big shift, especially as it related to, like, social media and, you know, how do we communicate with each other now in these new ways that we didn't before? Because, like... Web 1.0, and I'm dating myself here, like, it was basically just research. All you did was just look up things and read them. I mean, email existed back then, but it was in a very kind of rudimentary state. And there certainly weren't a lot of social sort of spaces unless you thought about maybe like a forum or, you know, Usenet or something like that. And then social media really started to take hold, I'd say, what, maybe like in the mid-2000s or so with, I mean, Facebook being one of them, but like Twitter and other things. And then as those platforms and experiences grew, you know, this whole other culture kind of arose with it as these things grew. And so I sort of see now as we, you know, it sounds like we're starting to transition from Web 2.0 to Web 3.0 or Web 3 with the metaverse, like there's going to also be that same type of like culture change in a way. Yeah, and and definitely similar to what you just described happening on the internet is what I hope at least uh, will happen and what we talk about a lot at work will happen in the metaverse of uh, creators having the chance to like do create new things. And that's that's one of the reasons even that I'm a designer is that I just love that you can put something out there and people can find new ways to use it and like find new ways to express themselves. And so I think it's going to be really great for giving creators that chance to find new ways to express themselves. Yeah. And I mean, even with that, you know, kind of expansion in culture, there's a lot to to think about in terms of just like, it's weird for me to think about it this way, because I, I distinctly remember how the web really like clicked over from one to two. And now it's about to click over from two to three. And I, even from one to two, there were so many new things that were created with the advent of like social media and user generated content, like the whole economy around online advertising. Like that's a whole industry that did not really exist in 2000, you know? Mm -hmm. And now you can, I mean, you do Google ads or whatever. There are people that have made millions just off of advertising on the internet. Like Mm -hmm. now you can think of with the metaverse, there could be different economic opportunities like that. Or like how do brands get in on this and what about intellectual property and all this stuff like how do you factor in all those sort of considerations in your work some of the things we're doing now that are kind of a peek into the future is that spark ar so we have we do have ar that you can do like kind of you know face filters that kind of thing um, on your phone and we recently hit like 700,000 creators on that platform. And so people are already finding new ways to use these new mediums to create. And as far as all these other things that we have to consider that you mentioned, something I'm really proud of that our group has done is release our responsible innovation principles that you can look up online. And so we're really laying out like these are the principles we're going to have as we build this new thing, because we know that there's going to be all of these questions. And we want to, you know, we want to build out in the open and we want to address things out in the open with everyone. And so there's definitely a lot to figure out and we're doing our best to make sure we do it responsibly. Yeah. It's just, it's so, I mean, I don't know. It's so exciting to really think about the path that you all are really forging with this and and to take all these considerations and things in mind. It's interesting you mentioned that about Spark AR because I just saw a tutorial on TikTok of all places on on how (laughs) someone can like easily make like an AR drawing like a Spark AR drawing using Procreate. And so like this person had uh, like a Procreate drawing. And for people listening, Procreate is a drawing application on the iPad. And basically they like took those layers and like dragged them into a Spark AR thing and was able to kind of, it looked really easy. I mean, it was a TikTok. So they illustrated it in like 60 seconds. I was like, oh, wow. You can easily make mm-hmm. AR things just like this. Like, yeah, I can see how that economy or even that just, opportunity for creators to make new things in this space 
will really unfold, especially once more people start to understand the technology, are able to get their hands on it and really sort of just understand the possibilities behind what can be done. Yeah, you can download Spark right now and make stuff. Like I was making stuff the other week, just <laughs> like it's pretty easy. So yeah, I, that's really great what you just mentioned because yeah, you never can fully imagine like all the things that people might use it for. And it's really great to kind of watch people discover like new ways, new mediums of art and, and expression. Yeah. So let's, I mean, we've been talking about the metaverse. Let's, let's bring it back to the real world. <laughs> um, and let's talk more about, about you. Cause of course you're the, you're the guest for this episode. So tell me more about like, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I am from Maryland over on the East coast and my family is from Haiti. So they met, my parents are from, from Haiti and they met in New York and moved to Maryland and had my brother and I. Okay. Growing up, were you kind of exposed to a lot of technology? I think my earliest memories are like in school using like a huge floppy disk to put, to play like games uh, in the computer in the library. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And my brother was really into video games. And so I played a lot of games and it was through that like playing games with my brother that really got me interested into technology. And I started really wanted to make games uh, since I was pretty young because uh, I just loved how much fun it was to play with him. And, and I remember looking like, in the manuals, back when there used to be manuals in the, in the games, you know, there's like a list of names there. And it's like, oh, I could do this, like I could do this, like make games. And so I kind of just started a journey of trying to figure out how I could do that. And, you know, I wrote a letter to Sega asking what classes I could take, all of these mm. things. And so, yeah, it kind of started me off there. Did they write back to you? They did. It was a really nice letter they sent. And they said, you know, take, you know, math and this and that. And so when I went to high school, I, I actually did a science and technology kind of magnet program uh, that I got into for high school. And so, yeah, I, I did a lot of science and technology courses there. Very cool. And of course, that sort of interest and passion eventually ended up leading you to USC, where you double majored in computer science, games, and East Asian languages and cultures. That sounds like quite a course load. Like, tell me about your time there. Like, what was that like? Yeah, it was pretty interesting because like, well, first of all, like I applied and accepted without ever visiting it. <laughs> so, because oh. I was living in Maryland and, and, you know, I was applying to schools and the school, they had this computer science program that focused in games and it, it wasn't even that they had it yet. It, it was going to be ready in like a year. And so I'd have to do the regular computer science and transfer into it. But I was just so excited to be able to go to a four-year university where I could learn about other things and East Asian languages as my other passion as well, and get to focus on making games. And it's this great program. It's a joint program between the cinema school and the computer science school. And so I just was like, I have to go there. And then I also was in marching band in high school. And the USC Trojan marching band is one of the most famous bands around. And I was like, I got to be in this marching band. <laughs> so I convinced my parents, like, you know, I got to go to this school. And yeah, I went there. And Something interesting is that I actually did get to go there before the school year started because I got into a a program at USC for high school students for making games <laughs> separately. So I went there over the summer, did the high school program, and then continued on to attend the school. What was it like doing the marching band at USC? Because they're a pretty well-known band, the Trojans, right? Yes, Trojans. So, yeah, it was definitely intense. It, like, it's it's a... Full-time job almost, because especially since I was in the drumline, I was in the drumline, and so there's like extra practices for drumline, and then there's practices for band, and then you're getting up at 5.45 every like Saturday for, before the games, because yeah, I got to do, you got to do like practice in the morning, then you got to do the marching all the way to the stadium and doing performances on the way, they got to do the pregame, <laughs> you got to do the halftime show, mm -hmm. the postgame, so like it's, it was a lot of time, and so it was tough doing the computer science major the, the band, the East Asian languages uh, with a focus in Japanese major. I did some part-time work because, you know, to help pay for school. Like, so it was pretty busy, but it was so fun being in the band. And I got to do all kinds of, in addition to doing the Rose Bowl, going to the Rose Bowl four times and the Rose Parade four times, mm. I was able to also do various LA gigs since we're kind of known as Hollywood's band. And so I've been on the Grammys, I've been on BET Awards, game shows and stuff. So it was just a really interesting thing to be doing in college and just getting to have these experiences. And then on top of that, you also even got a chance to study abroad too. Yeah, so I did take uh, five years to finish because I 
with the two majors. Plus, I went to study abroad in Tokyo. And so, yeah, I went to uh, Jochi Daigaku, which uh, in English is Sophia. They refer to it as Sophia University. And it was really fun. I stayed with the host family. I, I took my classes. The classes were pretty hard. So maybe I shouldn't have studied so much and should have like traveled around. But I was like, there was a lot of classes uh, that I was taking in addition to Japanese language. And so it was fun, a great learning experience. And I assumed that I would be back. Like I always thought I would live in Japan long term. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was great to reconnect with Japan because I had also gone there in high school as well. Oh, what, uh, what brought you there in high school? So my school in Greenbelt, Maryland, I basically had a sister school relationship with an, a school in Japan. And it's called Yokohama Suiran High School. And basically, there's an exchange program. So we would have exchange students come in and stay with us. And we would sometimes stay over there. And so there's basically every summer, there would be a trip to Japan. And so one of the years I went, and the year that I went, one of my friends actually convinced our Japanese teacher to take us on an extra part of the trip where we would bike across the country. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so there's this road called the Takedo Road. It's and it's an old trade route and has a lot of historical significance. There's an art print series that's based on it. In any case, my teacher had done that trip with someone before because it's a trip that people just take either walking or biking. And my friend convinced him to take us on it. I don't know how he got the approvals for it, but he basically took us a bunch of 15 year olds across the country for two weeks on bike, 400 miles. That was really, I think, a turning point in my life because I had never biked more than like a block before. And then I had to <laughs> bike 400 miles. So it was important for me. And then also, honestly, with my to help my relationship with my father because my father was like, you can't do this. Like, like after the first practice ride, I was like collapsing into his car. Mm-hmm. He, he drove a cab at the time. So he, like I get in the back of his cab and I'm like, my legs, ah, and we're only gone like four miles. And, I, and he's like, you can't go to Japan. Yeah. Um, you're going to hold people back, all of this. He's saying all this stuff. But then we came back and my teacher told him how well I did. Like we did tons of practice rides basically before we went. And okay. so I got so much better. And my teacher was like, hey, she really can do this. My teacher, Mr. Sisson, I, I can't thank him enough. He really convinced my dad and showed him like she can do these things. And ever since then, he's like, behind me 100% for anything that I do, including when I said I needed to go across the country to USC. So that was helpful. Wow, that's quite an experience. I mean, I'd imagine that really builds fortitude, especially, you know, in high school. Yeah, and it's pretty hilly at certain parts. Like, have you ever seen those Japanese prints with like the huge like mountain? I mean, it's yeah. extreme in the, in the picture, but we went on that, we were on that thing. And so it was pretty hard. But yeah, I really tried to push through. And around that time, Eminem's like lose yourself song was was popular and so I was just like <laughs> repeating that in my head like this is your shot yeah come on this is your opportunity I was just trying to get through sounds like a Gatorade commercial or something yeah yeah I guess. <laughs> yeah yeah it's really helped me always feel like I you know I can do I can do anything so and of course as, you know as I did my research for the interview and saw like you had a I mean you had a lot of great experiences in college I mean I can imagine even just doing the band is a lot, you know, with the, with all of the different kind of appearances that you had to do. But studying abroad, one thing that I mentioned, you know, before we started recording is that you, you interned at NASA in college. I interned at two NASA facilities in college as well. Like, what was your internship experience like there? Yeah, and actually, my, my internship was during high school. So oh! High school, yeah, so my, my high school that I mentioned, Ellen Roosevelt, it, it had, as part of the science and tech magnet program that I was in, you had to do a senior project and you could do it either like as your own project or as an internship. And fortunately, like right next to my school is NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And so I was able to do a computer science internship there. That was really cool. I was, I, like, I've always loved space. And so it was great to work there. And I, I worked in the cryogenics lab. So, mm. and basically what they do is, they reduce the temperature on sensors. It's a technology for like reducing temperature on sensors so that they can be sensitive enough to receive, you know, what what it what the sensors need to receive from space. So the intention is that these things would be sent out into space and they need to be kept cold enough to do their job, basically. And the so the project was to they had this program running their machine, their cryo their cryo machine, and it was called a how, what was it called? I, it's a very long, long name. It was like adiabatic demagnetization refrigerator or something like that. They were running this program on it, but it was super slow. And so my project was to rewrite it all 
in um, LabVIEW, which is this kind of like sciencey uh, way of doing programming, kind of a mm-hmm. visual programming language. I think they were using, I forgot what they were using before, but, and so I rewrote it and it worked a lot faster and they were so happy and like, and it was supposed to like actually get sent to space, but then all of the funding got pulled. I think something, something about George Bush happened and then, <laughs> and then like all the funding was pulled for all of their stuff. But I almost, that almost got to go to space. But later on, a HoloLens was sent into space with some of my work on it. So I, I feel like I've been vindicated there. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. When I, uh, when I interned at NASA in college, I did two internships. I did one at Ames, which is out in Moffett Field near Mountain View. And what was interesting enough is I interned there and it was around the, I think when I got there, first of all, it was my first time in California, but I got there and like, I remember people on the NASA campus were like buzzing about this, this new search engine called Google. Have you heard of it? <laughs> like, and I remember all of that, like, cause it was right around, like it was the summer of 2000 and people were really kind of buzzing about this new, yes, this new thing. It's down in, uh, it's down in, in Mountain View called Google or something like that. And then I did Marshall Space Flight Center in Normal, Alabama, my junior year. But then they also pulled the funding for our program because mm. 9-11 happened. So they pulled oh, wow. it and then the funding had went towards Homeland Security. And so like the the goal initially was like, oh, you intern at these two places. And then when you graduate, you're like set up to work for NASA. Like that was what I was going to do. But then they pulled the funding and it's like, well, sorry, good luck <laughs> trying to find something now. So, yeah, that's interesting that that ended up happening or a similar thing. I don't know. Maybe this might have coincided around the same time. I don't know. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, because I graduated around, let's see, 2005 mm-hmm. or something. So maybe it w- I don't know. But, yeah, I think probably I mean, it's, it's likely that projects funding gets pulled all the time. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not like uh, there's one thing that NASA is really known for is not getting a lot of funding. So that kind of makes sense, actually. Mm-hmm. While you were in, in college, you got a chance to intern at a gaming company, Electronic Arts. Was that kind of your, your first foray into really kind of working on games in that way? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I I went down to like San Francisco area, worked at Electronic Arts. And yeah, it was my first game gaming company job. And so I was a uh, software quality assurance test intern. So basically testing the game, creating automation and doing programming for testing the game and, you know, improving the quality. And it was really fun. I worked on, let's see, I think I worked on like Sim Animals on the Wii and a little bit on Dante's Inferno. And it was, yeah, it was a great experience to get that chance and I guess kind of a similar situation. There was a similar situation to what you just described. There was this, they were going to hire me full time. Like they were saying, like, oh, we'll come back to you and have you hire full time. But then they like froze hiring, and so it was kind of another thing where I felt like, oh, maybe I'll work here. You know, this will be where I work. But, mm-hmm. but then it didn't work out. Yeah, it's interesting how that stuff ends up happening in college. And then, I mean, for me, I sort of had to kind of scramble and find like, oh, well, what's going to be the thing that I end up doing because I was sort of in school on a certain path, like, yeah, I'm going to go this way. And then you get this, this kind of big curveball thrown at you. In your case, though, you ended up kind of getting hired by a pretty big tech company right around the time you graduated. Is that right? Yeah. Microsoft came to our campus, came to the, what we call the game pipe laboratory in the games major and, you know, talked with us and asked me if I would come interview and so, yeah, I ended up working at Microsoft as a software development engineer in test or an SDET, which is a role that they don't have anymore. But basically the, the role is how they describe it is that you are kind of the last line of defense for the user in terms of the, the game. So working in Xbox on working on Xbox, uh, working on like the Kinect game. So Kinect is kind of the first motion controller, if you remember it, of basically you could use your whole body to control the game. And so worked on the launch titles for that as my first work there. And then while I was there, we started working on HoloLens. So HoloLens started and it was a pretty nascent project um, when I got involved to the point that the test team was basically the only people who could who could run the demos. And so I was involved in a lot of high-level demos, just making sure things would go right and all of that. And the HoloLens is, the, is basically a headset, um, mixed reality computer. And yeah, and so while I was working on HoloLens, I actually switched to design. And I can get into that story if you want. But yeah, but, yeah Microsoft was my first corporate corporate gig. 
Yeah, let's talk about that because you were there for, I mean, a little over eight years. So you had a a long time to really kind of settle into, you know, the work that you were doing. But yeah, you started out, as you mentioned, in engineering. You started out in engineering and then you transitioned to design. Like what brought that shift about? Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned, the test role is kind of uh, advertised as you're there to protect the consumer, you're you're their advocate. And then while I was on HoloLens, supporting HoloLens, my test team was assigned to the studio that had a really great design team. And I started learning more about design. And also around this time, one of <laughs> one of the creative directors in the org started posting pages from Universal Principles of Design in the bathrooms for some reason, like in the bathrooms. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? This is the most interesting thing I've ever read. Because if you know that book, basically each page, you can learn like this whole thing, like a principle of design and like how it's shown in the real world. I was like, this is amazing. What is it? So like a a few things kind of came together there. And I'd also been looking into like, how long do I want to stay in test? Like I started literally going around interviewing like people who had been in the test field for 20 years to see like, what are you all working on? Like, I want to be you someday. And then after talking to them, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That's what I'm doing now, but just on like a bigger scope project. So all of these things kind of came together. And I just talked to my manager and I was like, I think I want to switch to design. And I talked to the creative director for the studio we're supporting about it. And he started giving me some tasks to do. And I I did well with those. And yeah, I had been helping one of the designers with uh, user tests. So, you know, having people come in and try out the application. And we started this kind of list of metrics for like how much people were enjoying it. And I really loved seeing those metrics like go up. Like I was supposed to be in charge of like putting in code into the build to collect data on how things were going, filing bugs, all of this. But I was like, who cares about the bugs if it's not fun, you know? And so I realized that I cared more about, and I always have cared about experience, but apparently at this moment, I was like, oh, design is the one, this is field design is the thing that I thought I was doing or that I, that is accomplishing the goal that I actually have of making an experience for people that matters, that like they feel and that they have fun. And so, yeah, they gave me a chance and, Funnily enough, the creative director, he said part of the reason he gave me a chance was because I'm a musician. And so he knew that I had at least some creativity. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm glad I did that, I guess, do music my whole life. So yeah, I interviewed and then I haven't looked back. So that was back in like, basically I'd been in test for about four years and then 2015 or so is when I switched to design. And so I got to work on the launch experiences for HoloLens and then go on to work on incubation projects and windows before I came to Meta. That's interesting how like something that you were doing kind of as a, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's a hobby, but like another interest of yours, music kind of ended up being in a way this entry point for you into design, which I think for hopefully for people that are listening kind of illustrates like how, you know, important it can be to be sort of well-rounded when it comes to the work that you do. Like it's one thing, of course, to focus on what it is that you know, but then if you have these other interests, they can you know, often guide you in, in many different ways. Like growing up, like I, when you mentioned like the science and tech stuff, like I was captain of the mathletes in high school. I majored in math in college. And I was also a musician. Like I, you mentioned musician. I was a session musician in my twenties and stuff like that. And it's interesting how like eventually design ended up becoming my career because I didn't want to be a math teacher. I liked math. I didn't like it that much to, to go and teach it, but I certainly liked it enough to get a degree in it, which that's probably a whole other story. But it's interesting how those like other parts of yourself or those other interests and things that you have kind of contribute or can contribute, you know, to other opportunities and things that you can pursue. Yeah. And that's, that's actually what I've always loved about game development. And so, because like games are something where it's a mixture of art and science. And so I've always wanted to make sure I had a lot of interest and things I could pull from to create in my game development. And then I also feel like music, both music and design are about making people feel something. Like my approach to design is that I kind of think of this magic moment of like, what is this feeling I want to have someone experience um, by using this this prototype or using this thing someday when it's a product? Like, what is that feeling I want them to have either in what they're trying to do or like connecting with someone else in this. I mean, music is like that too, where you can make someone feel something. And so I think it's, it's a really interesting connection uh, that they have. Yeah. Now, what are you kind of excited about at the moment? I mean, this is probably a, a vague question considering what you're doing with meta and, and all of that, but like, 
what's the thing that's really exciting you right now? Yeah. I mean, like the group that I'm in at work, like an interaction design group that we're, that I talked about earlier, I think we really have like an opportunity and I think we're going down some really interesting pathways as to like, how do we actually move forward? Like I kind of said at the beginning, like how do we move away from how we do computing right now? And so I'm really excited about some things that we've released publicly recently on our tech blog about our 10 year vision for AR and about some of the things we were building, such as a haptic glove for being able to actually feel virtual objects to like wrist-based interfaces that can be controlled by uh, EMG or electromyography in your wrist so that you can do very simple like interactions. So like, I think there's really, there's just a really big opportunity we have to finally, after decades of doing things one way <laughs> with computing of like keyboard and mi- mouse and standard way of doing things, we could, we actually have an opportunity to really improve like just how we do things in general. And so I'm just really excited to be a part of that. Now your career to date, I mean, just one going through what we've discussed so far has been like super prolific working for Microsoft, working for electronic arts and even all of your other activities with music and going to Japan and everything like that. Like as you look back at your career, who are some of the people that have like really stood out and have helped you as mentors? Yeah. What's interesting, I've kind of touched on some of them in this in this talk, which I guess is is saying something. Where, the, yeah, my teacher back in in high school, uh, Mr. Sisson, who took us on that trip, like he didn't have to. I assume I assume he took on a, a lot of risk taking a group of teenagers across a foreign land, and but that really helped like develop me as a person and define me for for a long time. And so I really appreciate that. I mentioned. That person who took a chance on me, uh, Cameron Brown, so the first creative director I had who hired me as a designer, and he really, you know, took a chance. I think there's a lot of times in our lives when people just, you know, if you make the right connections, people will give you an opportunity that if you take that opportunity, it really can change the course of your life. And I, I really appreciate being able to do this design work from that opportunity because it really is aligned with just how I think about how I want to make an impact in this world. So I really yeah, I appreciate everyone who's who's contributed to that. And it's really takes takes a lot of people over a long period of time to, to get us all to where we are right now. If there's someone that's out there that's listening to your story and they want to kind of follow in your footsteps, like what advice would you give them? Well, I mean, I would as far as following my footsteps, I mean, I think it's really important to find figure out what makes you excited and you know, what makes you feel passion for what you're doing. Like one of the things that got me the Microsoft job, I learned at some point was that they really wanted me to show, make sure I show the passion for what I'm doing. Like they, they gave me advice kind of through the different rounds of like, make sure you show your passion for what you're doing. And because that really will drive everything you do after that. And so that's what I focus on. Like I just focus on wanting to make, like what is the impact I want to make? And like, how can I do that? And how can each day go towards that? As far as like getting into this field, it's the AR VR field. It's really, it's surprisingly easy these days to like really jump in and like learn things. There's Unity Game Engine for for building experiences, for example. There's we actually have a program called Oculus Launchpad. So VR, you know, promising VR creators from underrepresented backgrounds, we actually give support to them to to build experiences, put their their products out there. So there's a lot of resources at Meta for people to get involved, but there's also just a lot out online. Spark AR that I mentioned, you know, build something. So like in general, I would say figure out what your passion is and then actually start just doing something like like bias towards action. So if you have an idea, build that idea. If you don't know how to do it, figure out how to how to do it. Like it, there's just so much you learn from just trying to build something because if you just try to learn a topic without actually building something, you're not you're going to be missing out on a lot. What do you think you would have went into if you didn't go into tech? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like depending on which point of my life we're talking about, I think it would have been different. So like I've always loved space, you know, so sometimes I think about maybe even someday in the future, like working more in this the space field. Like I just really love the idea of, of humans going to another planet and all that. I don't know how it would contribute necessarily at this point, but I just love the, that idea. Also with the interest in, J- in Japan, which stemmed from my interest in video games initially, I, I sometimes think about, I could have gone into, of course, with the other major, I could have gone into translation or being a maybe a Japanese teacher, but probably, yeah, if I was going to go down that path, I'd probably go into translation because I really love the idea of helping people 
connect. And that was one of the biggest things I learned from my exchange experience was like when we would have students come visit us or we would visit them, like we were all just high school students. We were all like silly laughing high school students, even though we were from different countries and spoke different languages. Like that's something I learned really early on about people that, you know, we're not as different as we think. And so I love the idea of helping other people communicate between each other, even if they're speaking a different language. And so just in general, anything that involves connecting people is is something that I would go into. And I'll just also say, like, AR, VR, like augmented reality, one, one of the things that excites me so much about it is this idea of being able to be present with people, like I talked about earlier. Like, And basically, I feel like AR, VR is the next best thing to like teleportation. <laughs> so like I like I wish I could teleport to like go see my family or go see go to places I haven't been in a long time, but like I feel like I'm working on the next best thing. So I guess also if if teleportation ever becomes a thing, I would definitely work on that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that about space because I mean one, space is super, super interesting. But like right now I feel like there's this whole thing around governance of space because no one no one owns space right like it's space nobody owns space (laughs) but you have like the international space station you have other countries that have launched satellites and things like that and there's like tons of space junk just like orbiting the planet or like in the planet's fairly low orbit or something like that and it's like there's no real governance around space or cleaning up space. I mean, space in terms of just like what's around the the earth and stuff. Cause there have been some times I think this year where a couple of people were talking about, well, how come we can't just like take all the planet's garbage and launch it into space? I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like if you think about it on a logistical level, humans create a lot of waste. Do you know how much time that's going to take, how much fuel that's going to take? And like just dumping it into space doesn't solve the problem. Like, Anyway, uh, space is is infinitely interesting, and I do feel there are a lot of opportunities there, even with the whole, like, new Space Force thing. But from a research capability, certainly with other planets and things, but it's sort of like, if Earth is our home, which it is, then, like, our yard is filthy. Like, there's a bunch, there's, like, toys and stuff. It's it's a mess. So maybe, I don't know, focus on that. I don't know. But that's that's a whole other thing. I think space, the whole like space exploration and the work, the work that we do on like augmented reality, virtual reality, kind of relate in that there's a lot of uncharted territory. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that makes it really exciting, right? About space is like who knows what's out. There? We got to get there. We got to see stuff, and that's kind of like what my I guess it's kind of like what my group does is like we got to you know go out there and figure this out because like basically every day there's like a long list of unknowns that we're dealing with and it's just a very high ambiguity space and mm-hmm. so that can be honestly it could be it can be frustrating sometimes but but it's also exciting because the potential for what we can learn is just so huge and that, yeah. that's what i like about both both of those areas yeah high ambiguity spaces are a lot of fun because you then really get to like carve out what you want to do and figure things out like the fact that nothing is really concrete means that you can sort of do sort of do what you want, but also establish rules and things. So I I like working in those kinds of spaces. It's really fun. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, I think just based on the work that you're doing, of course, it's going to be future focused. But if you really could like look into 2026, I think, 2056, what kind of work do you see yourself doing or, or what kind of work do you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, like I said, we work in the five to 10 year time frame, And so I'm hoping that five years from now, we'll be in a place where some of the things we're working on have, are, you know, have landed or, or we figured out where we shouldn't be doing. Like, I just really want to be helping us get to that place where, where things are getting more defined and we've, we've landed in a good place. And so like right now, I, so I'm an individual contributor. I, I don't manage any people, but I do drive a lot of what we call like you know, cross-group collaborations, right? Of like, you know, you have an idea and you can kind of drive it with a lot of different people. And so I would love to keep doing that work, but at a greater scope. And yeah, just really helps carve out the strategy for like, how are we actually going to land this thing? Because I mean, because even once we figure out a lot of things like, oh, we figured it out, you know, we have something in the lab that works, it's great. But then it's like, okay, now we really have the (laughs) the work to do of like, how do we actually transfer it to something that people could actually use? And so I think, Five years down the line, I'd love to be a leader in the organization that's helping define some major piece of this future we're trying to create. 
Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, all of that? Where can they find that online? Yeah, you can go to charleneatlas.com. And on there, you can also find a link to my LinkedIn, where definitely hit me up if you're interested in working in Reality Labs. And also the uh, tech.fb.com, the tech Facebook blog has a lot of our latest research information posts. Sounds good. Well, Charlene Atlas, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. You know, as I was doing my research for all of this, and I mentioned to you uh, before that I'm going to this uh, like metaverse conference thing tomorrow that I'm super excited about. But like, as I was putting all this together and really just digging into your background, I mean, you have accomplished so much. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling to, to see the work that you're doing now. And because it's such an uncharted space, I hope that people will get a sense of your passion for this, as you've mentioned before about people being passionate about this. I hope people get a sense of what your passion is for this. And hopefully that can fuel them to see sort of what new possibilities might be out there for them, especially as we embark upon a new year. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maurice. It was great talking to you. Big, big thanks to Charlene Atlas. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Charlene and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you. Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Help us out there. It really, really helps to really just spread the show all over the world. Of course, this is a new year. We, of course, want to reach as many people as we possibly can and help grow the show and reach people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. We'll be right back.